Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. UX Cake is all about developing the layers you need to be more effective in your work and to be happy and fulfilled in your career. I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo, and I'm a UX leader and leadership coach. Hello, and welcome to the UX Cake podcast. Today, we're talking about accessibility in digital products and why it's important and how you can incorporate it into your day-to-day work. My guest is Chimmy Kalu, who's a product designer in London, England. And Chimmy has worked at some fairly large companies, global companies like British Airways and Condé Nast, where accessibility is not just important, (laughs) but it's required. And that might be something that you're dealing with as well. But for Chimmy, her desire to create her passion even to create accessible products stemmed from her schooling days before she started her career in design when she had an instructor who was blind. And this really brought home to Chimmy the importance of accessibility in product design. And also she could see firsthand the effects of what an inaccessible product has on the user. So currently, Chimmy is a senior product designer at Triptease, which is a global digital platform for hotels. And she also conducts workshops in accessibility, which we talk about. So you can learn about that as well. And if you're interested in accessibility, I would highly recommend that you check out UX Cake podcast number 25 when I talked with Liz Jackson, who is a very vocal advocate for disability in design. That's a great episode, and I I know that you'll learn a lot from Liz. Finally, before we jump in, one of the accessibility guidelines that we talk about in our conversation is pronounced WCAG, which is an acronym. Well, it's the acronym is WCAG, and that stands for Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. I just wanted to mention that so that you aren't confused when you hear it. All right, with that, let's jump in. Hi, Jimmy. It is so great to be talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me on UX Cake today. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to be talking about incorporating accessibility and inclusive design in our day-to-day work in user experience design. And I would love to start with learning a little bit about How did you become interested in accessibility in the course of your product design career? I didn't really have a choice. So I started the master's at the University College London and the Human Computer Interaction and Ergonomics. And the director of UCLIC at the time was disabled. And so everything that we learned had a reminder to make our work accessible and inclusive. And then I went to work in my first job as a designer and British Airways, BA.com has an American facing website. So it was imperative that we adhere to section 508 as well as the web content accessibility guidelines. So these accessibility requirements, right, are common in the US and in Europe, but for you, 
it's become something that you are actually quite passionate about and you talks about and you do workshops on. So I'd love to kind of pull that piece a little bit, kind of let's pull on that thread. And what made this seem like something that you were going to like make your own? Well, when I left British Airways and I went to work at New Look, and as I've gone through my career, I realized that lots of people had no idea about accessibility. And so they weren't thinking about it. Or if they were thinking about it, they were thinking about it in a, I have to do this, but I have absolutely no idea Mm -hmm. where to start. Yeah, yeah. And I'd never had that because accessibility has always been in my design process. I didn't ever have another way. So that's why I speak about, write about, and teach accessibility, because I think it's foundational. If you're a UX designer, if you think that you're creating something that's usable, then you can't very well exclude 2.2 billion people who are registered or identify or have a disability in the world. And let's talk about that a little bit. Like accessibility and user experience design at its most basic, we're talking about digital products and physical product experiences. They need to be usable by people with physical disabilities just at the most basic. So I'd love for you to kind of like expound on that a little bit. What would you add to that definition? So I suppose there are different kinds of or different definitions of accessibility. The first definition is accessibility is a standard. So the goal is to include people and accessibility is a measure of how well you're accomplishing that goal. But my favorite definition is by Sharon Rush, who is the director of Knowability. And she says, when people, regardless of ability or disability, have access to the same information and function. I think it's critical to think about it that way because we're not trying to create one thing that works for everyone. We're trying to create experiences that work for different sets of people. So I might be thinking about things that make my design accessible for blind people. And that will vary from things that I do that make the design accessible for deaf people, for example. It's not a one size fits all. It's just thinking if basically, I think if you don't think about it, you will 100% become inaccessible. But if you're intentional about it, then you're more than likely going to create things that at least include more people than if you hadn't thought about it. And why is that? Why are we creating things that are not accessible? Oh, because to be accessible at the highest standard, so WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, um, have three levels of accessibility. So there's A, which is the minimum. There's double A, which is probably the most common level that people adhere to. And then there's triple A. So that's the level that governments and services or products that really have to be accessible to everyone adheres to. But to meet that level of accessibility is probably beyond the reach of many people. So assuming that you aren't at any time, because not all of us are working for a Google or a Facebook, trying to actually reach every single person in the world, then it's not acceptable to be inaccessible, but it's acceptable to not be AAA accessible. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So let's take a step back a little bit. I would 
like to hear a little bit more about how you are incorporating accessibility into your own design work on a regular basis. I think there are a number of companies that there aren't very many companies that have the luxury of having a person or a group of people who specialize in accessibility and not that that even would be the right thing to do, right? I think part of what we're talking about is why it's important for everyone who's involved in creating a product to be thinking about, <laughs> is this accessible and what is accessible and, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of like, let's step back a minute and tell us more about how you are incorporating this just on a regular basis in your day-to-day design process. Yes. So the first thing that's important here is that I'm not idealistic. I'm not a person who berates those that can't do the best that they like. I just want everyone to do the best that they can. Start from where you are Mm -hmm. and start making progress. And if everyone does a little bit, then we will all collectively be more accessible than if we didn't do anything at all. So that's the starting point. So I do the things that I'm in control of. As a designer, I'm usually in charge of visual elements. So making sure that anything that's visual has high contrast, for example, is quite easy to do. The same thing, doing things like making sure that you're not using color as the only way to represent state Mm -hmm. in your design. That's something, again, that's completely in the control of the designer. So I'm never going to submit something that's high contrast and a developer is like, no, 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 I can see that too clearly, right? That you don't even need permission to do your bit as a Mm -hmm. designer. So I think about all of, there's a nice checklist, um, the Elsevier accessibility checklist that has a quick reminder of what aspects of the WCAG guidelines are the responsibility of a designer. So it splits the guidelines into the responsibility of a designer, those that are the responsibility of a developer, and those that um, testers need to be aware of. And so if I only deliver on my design ones, that's okay even if I can't get the engineers to be interested. (laughs) I'm laughing because, well, first of all, I want to restate the name. Maybe you could spell it. (laughs) E-L-S-E-B-I-E-R. I should probably send the link. Yes, yes. We'll for sure have the link in the uh, show notes. Elsevier. I never know how to pronounce it. Elsevier. Yes. E-L-S-E-B-I-E-R. Yes. But what got me laughing was you may not get pushback from developers on lack of contrast or size of font, right? But I've worked in, (laughs) I've worked with a whole lot of different design groups and where you get pushback sometimes is art director or brand director, or I have even come across companies that have brand guidelines that include what I would consider to be lower accessibility, especially when you're talking about things like contrast and statefulness and things like that. So let's talk about that a little bit, because that is kind of a basic starting place for a a lot of folks that you're talking about as this is a great place to start when you are creating your design. So what are some ways that a designer can kind of approach that situation where what they're working with is, is not actually doesn't meet these guidelines? So I've usually found that businesses care more about profit than anything else. So my argument is, do we really want to exclude X number of people from being able to use our site? Um, Unfortunately, 
a lot of brand work and brand assets are created for graphic design. They aren't actually thinking about product design. And so you'll see the color palette, for example, is usually insufficient for all of the scenarios that you want to use colors Mm -hmm. for in digital design. So I find that as long as I'm not doing things like changing the logo, um, going against rounded corners, you know, those sort of things that brand designers care about, they usually leave me alone because the areas of a product that need to be accessible are usually the bits of a product that require tasks to be completed. So making sure that errors are clear and discoverable, making sure that people can recover from errors, making sure that people can see what to click. Like no one's going to push back on you for making your call to action stand out on a page. And if they do push back on things like that, then I've usually leaned on things like an A-B test, again, to point towards the profitability or the money angle. So it's like, okay, fine, we'll put this low contrast thing live, show it to 10% of the audience, and then fingers crossed the conversion rate or sign up rate or whatever it is that that department cares about goes down and then I don't get pushed back anymore. Right, right. Showing that it's not going to impact conversion. And I think it's also good to reiterate that having these guidelines can be really helpful for a designer who can learn what they are to give you, you know, a little bit of, well, (laughs) these are the guidelines that we are supposed to be, that we're supposed to be designing for. These are part of best practices. So those can be good arguments when they're brought to the attention. You know, a conversation with brand design or with whoever it is, it does need to be a conversation. Yes. And I feel like the things that I've had pushback on is taking engineering time. As long as it's pure design, I never get pushback. But when I'm like, look, we need to change things so that the tab order is visible, or I'm sorry, why did you remove the focus state? Can we put it back? Then sure, maybe that's a conversation, but that's because I need to involve someone else to get the job done. But things that are pure design task, it's been a few years. Yeah. And you've worked with some big brands. I mean, like with Condé Nast, those are highly visual brands. So clearly, if those are things that you've been able to put forward, it's possible, right? (laughs) Yes. I think it's there's a little bit of effort on the part of the designer to think about because accessibility matters in terms of the things that are important. If there's something decorative on the screen, like it's neither here nor there, but if there's something that's signposting by now, or if there's something that's important in understanding what your options are for the best plan, then those have to be accessible. And there's very rarely any brand interference in those spaces. You talked a little bit about the guidelines for accessibility. So in US and in Europe, we have pretty well-defined rules. Maybe you can mention again just what those are and what the options are for people outside of the US and Europe. So the web content accessibility guidelines are kind of the global international standards. So that's what it was created by working with individuals and organizations around the world to create a set of guidelines that we can all adhere to. The US has the Americans with Disabilities Act, and there's a section 508 
that's related to sort of digital and electronic things. So while I mostly adhere to WCAG, if I have a high American traffic, if there's lots of American, I just double check to make sure that I'm adhering to Section 508 as well, because they're not dissimilar, but they're not exactly the same. And so for folks who are, I mean, this podcast has a global audience. I mean, that's a whole nother (laughs) podcast episode we could talk about right there, globalization and localization and InDesign, universal design. But specific to accessibility and being inclusive for all abilities, what about areas that China and India, for example, Asia in general, like if you are in some place where you aren't clear what the guidelines are, what would be your approach? So I think it's WCAG, but I don't want to speak out of context because what's good culturally differs. So I've worked in Asia, not in Asia, I've designed for Asian audiences. And I know that, for example, it's prevalent and even expected to have lots of moving elements, lots of highly Mm -hmm interactive things, which kind of break the rules of Mm -hmm. accessibility. But who am I to sit in my Western location and dictate? So if I ever worked physically in China or India, I would probably put a lot more effort to find out what the line is, what the barrier is between culture and accessibility there. But when I've worked for those audiences, for Western companies, I've certainly adhered to the WCAG guidelines. Right. So beyond rules and guidelines, there's one reason that this could be desirable for a team to do this or for a company to do this, right? Which is that they have to adhere to standards. (laughs) They can be fined (laughs) if they're not. (laughs) But beyond that, right? Making this desirable, how do we get others to care about this? I assume most people who are designers are working either for themselves in their own business or for companies. I don't think design is usually a hobby. So if one is doing design in the context of making money, then you are literally leaving money on the table if you don't make your products accessible. So I'll give you an example with some numbers. Let's say I'm creating a mobile phone app, right? So something that's going to run on my mobile phone. And in designing that app, I don't think about someone being able to use my app with one hand. I might think, ah, there's only 26,000 people in the US um, registered as disabled with only one arm. But when we add in people like a new parent, So new parents often walk around with their baby in one hand, so they need to do everything on their mobile with just one hand or anyone who has any kind of injury, RSI, sprains, strains, broken wrist. Suddenly, you've removed 21 million people from being Mm -hmm. able to use a product. Who wants to leave that kind of audience unavailable to use their product? Right, right. So taking these things into consideration, let's talk for a moment about the rest of the team. So the designer is part of the product development cycle. How do we get others to tap into the kind of empathy that you've developed? Right. Empathy. So I usually try to frame things in uncomfortable ways. Um, In one of my jobs, 
um, we were building out the design system for the first time. And I wanted that design system to be accessible because it's much easier if you build these things accessibly than try to retrofit. And one of the visual designers was like, ah, Chimmy, you know, sort of what proportion of our audience is disabled? And I said, what number would suit you? What number would motivate you <laughs> to do this work? One, 20,000. And he kept quiet. <laughs> <laughs> because when faced with the fact of being intentionally exclusive of even one person, most people will keep quiet. Now, the true barriers to making things accessible are usually time and budget. Right. So I like to frame everything in terms of what the positive or negative impact will be in terms of time or effort. And if you make things inaccessible, so I'm the only designer at my workplace at the moment, and therefore I can't get around everywhere. And sometimes people do sketchy things. So there's one or two things that have slipped past with low visibility. And then we have clients sending messages saying, I can't see this thing. And suddenly everyone's motivated to fix it because it's not Jimmy banging on about accessibility. It's literally the people that you're supposed to be creating this thing for can't use it. But I've also done, I'm loath to do these exercises because I don't think that you should need to experience something to feel empathetic. But I have done things like told people to, why don't you try using the internet for one day without a mouse? That can be eye-opening for a bunch of people. Or why don't you try running your programs in grayscale? Again, bit of a shock when people realize what's going on. And that's the experience of people who are permanently disabled, that they're having to navigate the web with some of those challenges. Yeah. And that brings to mind testing, right, with users, which is one way that we do build empathy with our stakeholders and with our teammates. Before we talk about testing, there was one other thing that you mentioned that I'd like to dig into a little bit more. And that's kind of around this idea of how do we break down the obstacles to this? How do we make it easier to do? And I love that you brought up the fact that if you build it in, so for example, when you are creating the design system, <laughs> if you build it in, it's a lot cheaper to do it that way. So putting it into our structures that we're using to make everything easier. But what are some other ways that you've seen make it easier or more digestible, breaking down the barriers to be adding it in when it hasn't been done correctly? So at the moment, some of the things that I've been in talks with my engineers around using things like Tailwind CSS. So Tailwind CSS and Tailwind Components are just accessible by design. So if you're a front-end team and you're thinking, oh my God, I don't want to maintain accessibility and you used Tailwind, everything you built would just be accessible. So that's one tip. The other thing, like I said, is being kind. So I don't need everything to be fixed immediately. I need to do bits of work as and when we can do it. So one of the things that I did to sort out the issue I said with the colors is that I expanded the color palette. So the reason that people had created some inaccessible things was because the color palette had been created for brand, like I said, and then didn't cater to the reality of being used in product. So I expanded the color tones and tints, mm -hmm. and therefore we could accomplish accessible design with them. And it was easy to get one developer 
who also is passionate about accessibility to help me change the base color palette. And then now all the other developers just need to use the new colors. And voila, we have some more accessible colors. Yeah. And you've used a technique that I love to remind people about, which is find another advocate for whatever it is you're passionate about, like start small and make headway. That's another way to make headway is to kind of like keep beating the drum, but look for your allies. Exactly. I'm a big believer in starting small because that's the thing why I've seen people just get completely overwhelmed because they hear accessibility and they think, oh my goodness, we're going to have to hire consultants. And then the consultants are going to spend a long time auditing and then they're going to give us one million things that we need to fix. But if you don't do that, or you could do that, but a smaller, more manageable, more iterative way of doing things is to, for example, add something called Pali, P-A-1-1-Y, to your deployment mechanism. And Pali can flag any bits of your code that aren't accessible. Now, if you're being ruthless, if you want to aim for triple A standard, for example, you can set up Pali so that nothing gets deployed if it's inaccessible. Or you can set it up so it just flags things that inaccessible and it looks unattractive in the code. So for mm-hmm. any developer that doesn't like squiggly lines or things that look unfinished, they'll be motivated to get that sorted oh, and have nice, beautiful code. Ah, (laughs) wow, that's really interesting. So I guess this brings me to, I've been sort of thinking about this as steps, like step one, make it desirable. Step two, make it easier, break down the barriers. Step three, create some accountability. So like these structures that you can put into place. So step four is the feedback loop, right? How do we validate? You can have things like dashboards, that show, because I would normally start with some sort of audit, some sort of thing that tells you the state of play, right? Because to close your feedback loop, you need to know where you started. Then you can either run those tests again. So when I've done sort of, I arrived somewhere and it was inaccessible, then I'll start making changes and then frequently report back to everyone any changes in our accessibility score, for example, on Google Lighthouse or any of the tools which you can measure accessibility. If you have a team that's even more keen, you can create a dashboard. And every time something new becomes accessible, you basically get a new green square or something on the screen. And basically you're trying to gamify sort of getting Mm -hmm. everything (laughs) looking nice and green. And that excites people because they can see what happens. Other than that, I don't know. Most people don't really care after I made them do it. What about when you want to find out if something is, what do you do when you want to hear from users? Like, have you done usability testing with people with disabilities? Yes, but also there's a company called Fable that you can hire and they do all sorts of testing with actually disabled people. But I very rarely have the budget to do that. So I tend to run accessibility reports, whether I'm using Google's Lighthouse or any of the online tools to get a sense, because like I said, it's a standard. In my ideal world, my favorite thing has been having disabled people in the workplace because then they can use the products and confirm that it's truly accessible and not just rely on standards. And I say that because, for example, watching someone 
who's blind using a screen reader is one million times different from me attempting to mm-hmm. mock it myself. Like the speed, I can't even hear what they're doing because it's so fast, because they're so used to it and they get through the interface. So that's more likely to flag a problem with my old text or anything else that has to do with screen readers, probably, mm-hmm. than running a report. Yeah. So that would be my deal. Disabled people as part of my design team, as part of my development team, and build accessible products that way. Yeah. And actually, that brings to mind, actually, episode 25. I talked with Liz Jackson, who's she's a disability advocate and very vocal (laughs) and exuberant advocate for disability in design and accessibility in design. And a big part of what she's talking about is we're so biased, we are not even including these people in our design of the products. They're not actually on our teams. Exactly. I mean, right now I am talking to you without my glasses, which is incredibly unusual. In fact, I don't do this because I don't see very clearly. But luckily, I'm only talking to you, so I know what you look like. Therefore, it's not a problem. But no one thinks of me as disabled because I have my corrective Mm -hmm. device that makes the world accessible to me. And I think that we would make further steps towards getting truly accessible digital products, physical spaces, if more disabled people were truly consulted. Liz uses the phrase disability dongles very frequently. And it's true that with our lens of abledness, we might consider something to be a solution to a problem that doesn't actually exist or a suitable solution, but a disabled person with the actual problem might not see it that way because basically I'm not the arbiter of what is Mm -hmm. a suitable solution, to be honest, because I'm not disabled. Does that make sense? Like Mm -hmm. I don't get to decide whether something is, but because I unfortunately, have not yet acquired the ability to hire. I'm at the mercy of my current limitations. And therefore, I do the thing that is possible, which is to proxy in some way the measurement of accessibility. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a whole lot of issues with design being really biased. (laughs) And it's really interesting that you bring up the whole glasses being such a factor And I have glasses now, and it's because of my age. And ageism is a real thing (laughs) in technology, I can tell you for sure. And I can't always put on my reading glasses. So, for example, I have an iWatch that I use when I go running. And it's important to me that I know my heart rate when I'm running. And in the app that I use, the heart rate number is so small, I can't actually tell the difference between a five and a six. And so if that was the last number, that wouldn't be a problem, but it's actually the middle number. So when I'm going past my target heart rate, I'm like, I can't even necessarily tell if it's a seven. So it's it could be a five, six or seven. And that would be like <laughs> really bad. <laughs> it would be really bad. That's what I mean. Like sometimes the issue is not like until you need reading glasses, Mm -hmm. you don't think about it. Right. And I think like this is to illustrate maybe how you begin to build empathy, right? With other people, like until you experience the world 
as a blind person or as a paralyzed person or as a deaf person, it's really difficult to know. Like, it's impossible to know. And so we have to have these people as part of our process. And like you said, I guess the next step is a proxy. And so that is why they have these guidelines. And I think hopefully it'll become a bigger part of what's available to product development teams is access to people with disabilities. I hope so. I mean, one of the things that I think is quite exciting about these times, well, exciting, I don't know, but remote work and the ability to work a little bit more flexibly and a little bit more remotely has made some work accessible to people that previously would have been unable to physically go to a workplace or whatever. And so I'm hoping that this era of more flexibility and more remoteness means that we can have more disabled people joining product design teams Mm -hmm. and other kinds of design teams. Yeah, I agree with you there for sure. So I would love to know what else, like what have we not covered? What do people need to know about accessibility in design? So I guess accessibility should be the gold standard. You just need to try to aim for it. You may not get there perfectly, but at least you should keep trying. Don't worry about the things that you can, can't do. I basically go through life deciding what I can change and what I'm going to have to accept. And I feel like if people start with that, so start with the things that you can change. And after you've dealt with all of those things, then you can move on to the things that you need other people to change. Like you said, find an ally. There's usually at least one engineer, one developer somewhere that is super keen to get things accessible. If you can find that person and start working with that person, you have infinitely more capacity to start to get other people interested. Show, not tell. If I have to tell people, oh, let's make this thing accessible, I'm going to have more issues than if I just showed the difference between something that's accessible and something that's not accessible. So I alluded to it with sort of getting people to try to navigate through their favorite website without a mouse. They suddenly realize why they need to think about focus states and tab order. And we'll probably all get to the point where we're 100% accessible based on today's standards, and then the goalposts will shift. And so we'll have to start again. And that's okay, because we love growth and we love continuously improving. (laughs) And there's lots of room for improvement. (laughs) Always. Um, (laughs) One thing that I do want to mention before we wrap up is you have mentioned that you do workshops. So tell us a little bit about that. So I run a series of workshops on a bunch of different things. Typically, I do introduction to design. So people who are transitioning into design, stuff like that. Off the back of a LinkedIn course that I'm working on now, I've also built a series of sort of, there's a practical accessibility workshop. And then there's workshops around sort of leveling up your design Um, superpowers. So Mm. challenges that I know that lots of designers face, particularly if you're the only designer, you're designing in a company that's maybe not the most mature in terms of UX and design, or if you're suddenly sort of like a lead designer and previously you've had other kinds of support. There are things around how to communicate design, how to advocate for design and other such courses, but they will all be listed on my website. Awesome. Which is www.chimikalu.com. All right. 
How else could people hear from you, follow you online? My LinkedIn is Chimmy, first name, and Kalu, second name. My Instagram and Twitter are both at Chimmy Kalu. Awesome. That's great. And that would be a great way also to find out when your LinkedIn learning course is available. So it's supposed to go out in July, but I was a little bit slow with finishing the course. So maybe July, maybe August. Yeah. I have to wait to hear back. Nice. But following you online is going to be a good way to find that out. Yes. (laughs) I also offer one-to-one mentoring. So if anyone urgently wanted to find out what's in my course, they can also do that. Excellent. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for this conversation, for joining me on UX Cake today. I appreciate your time and your, like what you do to get this message out there. I think it's very important. So yeah. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Hey, if you enjoyed this slice of UX cake, please share this episode with a friend or a few. You can share it on social media even. It really helps us spread the word and get this free content to more people. You can follow UX cake on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram and get all the episodes and show notes at uxcake.co. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing the UX Cake.